of you for coming. Lovely to see so many familiar and so many unfamiliar faces. As Dom says, I'm Keith Mansfield and I'm really lucky because I get to write um, books about a guy called Johnny McIntosh. So quick straw poll, who here has heard of Johnny McIntosh? Yay, loads of hands there, most of them, that's cool. Who here has maybe read this book, Johnny Macintosh and the Spirit of London? Not quite so many, but still lots of you. Is there anyone here who's read this book out in January, Johnny Macintosh Starblaze? Oh, you're just embarrassing us. <laughs> <laughs> no heckling, please. And is there anybody who's even read both books? <laughs> And still a good few, very impressive. And a quick recap for those of you who know nothing about Johnny Macintosh. There were, there were some with no hands out, no hands up. So Johnny's a young teenager. In fact, in the first book, The Spirit of London, it opens on his 13th birthday. And of course, he's special and different, or he wouldn't have any great adventures for me to write about. Um, and he's very into space, and he's very into science, amongst other things. And he's got a sister called Clara and an old English sheepdog called Bentley. And you'll probably pick up a bit more as we go along. Um, or you can ask me at the end if you, if you want to know more. Now, as well as writing those books, um, I do have a day job as well. So I was going to say, put up your hands, anybody whose favourite subject at school was or is mathematics. Who likes maths? Yay! Well, that's quite, that's quite an impressive selection. Not bad. So there's a few of us weirdos in here. Um, and we're lucky to be here in Oxford because Oxford doesn't just have a very famous university. It has a very famous mathematics department. And it's done brilliant work over the centuries. And just one example of the great things they've done here, in 1557... <coughs> In Oxford University Maths Department, they invented the equals sign. So a guy called Robert Record. So up before 1557, there were no answers to any sums. Um, and now, and so I work for the department of the university that publishes books, and I publish maths books for the university. So I publish very special books like this one here by a guy called Miguel Alcubierre, Introduction to 3 plus 1 Numerical Relativity. So that's the sort of books that I sometimes publish. So who here has heard of Warp Drive? Have we got any Trekkies in the audience? So quite a few people, Warp Drive, How the Starship Enterprise Travels. Well, in 1994... Miguel Alcubierre here, he wrote a paper, a piece of science, that was the very first scientific foundation for what might become warp drive. It was a very exciting paper, and there's been lots of conferences and things sprouted as a result of that. And maybe some of you saw the film last year, Disney film Escape to Witch Mountain. Did anyone see that? So quite a few of you. In, in fact, in the film last year, they mentioned the Alcubierre Drive. And I love it when science fiction, like Star Trek, inspires real science. And I would really, really love it if some stuff in the Johnny Macintosh stories inspires the scientists of tomorrow. Um, 
So I don't just publish books for OUP. Sometimes I've written some TV shows. Um, so do you guys know JK and Joel? Hydra in the House? Anyone ever watch that show? Great stuff. Well, I wrote a different show for JK and Joel a couple of years ago, and I've written quite a few bits of TV. But tonight's talk is really inspired by a television show that I saw about 30 years ago. And it was presented by this guy here. I don't know if you can see him. And his name was Carl Sagan. And the TV show was called Cosmos. And this is the book of the TV show. And I was very lucky that later in life, I got to meet Carl Sagan. And he signed this copy of Cosmos for me. So as you can see, it's a bit battered, but it's much loved. And so my little advert for tonight is if anybody's brought a Johnny Macintosh book along that they want me to sign, or we have some downstairs, then I'm very happy, happy to do that later on. Okay. And so Cosmos there, that's a book all about science. My Johnny Macintosh books, I've tried to weave bits of science into the stories, but what you must remember is it's always trying to be a bit of excitement, a great adventure story. So there's lots of real science, but some of it, sometimes I've bent or broken the rules a little, and we might talk about that a bit as we go along. But that's enough science for now. We might be in Science Oxford. But one of my other favourite subjects is food. So I wondered who had a piece of apple pie when they came in today. So what I'd say is, let's do the TV, let's do the Graham Norton thing. Stand up if you had a piece of apple pie when you, when you came in. Okay, oh, not so many of you. I was going to say, stay standing, stay standing then. If you thought that was the most delicious, most beautiful, absolutely perfect apple pie you've ever had in your entire life. <laughs> and although I brought those along myself, I'm not too disappointed. And why is that? Are you still standing? Was that the Oh! So can I ask you two then? So you're still standing. So has either of you ever actually had an apple pie before? <laughs> well, there you go. And I'm surprised then that, that Sainsbury's basic range does it for you. Because but, but, most people, they would say the best apple pies are the ones that are made from scratch, that aren't pre-packaged and pre-prepared in the supermarket. And I'm sure there are some people here who make great apple pies of their own. And I wondered, really making apple pie from scratch, does anybody, say, grow their own apples that go into an apple pie? So we have a couple of those. Now, I'm really, really hopeless with pastry, so sometimes I buy pastry if I'm making a pie. But are there any people here who make their own pastry? So we've got, we've got some makers of pastry. And yet pastry, what are the ingredients of pastry? Pastry is really flour and butter, I'd say. So if you're making your pastry from scratch, maybe you make your butter from scratch. So does anyone milk their own cows <laughs> to make the pastry? <laughs> we have one there. Okay, and probably no one does that. And so this guy, Carl Sagan, what he said is to make an apple pie from scratch, first, 
you must invent the universe. And that's, we'll go on to talk about that a bit more later. But I wondered who's read the Percy Jackson books, or some of them? So a few, a few of you there. Um, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, for those who don't know, about Greek gods alive today. So those of you who've read those, you'll know that ancient Greece is kind of the cradle of Western civilization. It's where so many of our great ideas come from and where it all began. And there was an ancient Greek guy, one of these people, who's called Democritus of Abdera. And Democritus had this really brilliant idea. And I wonder if anybody can guess what Democritus's idea might be. Was it something to do with aliens? No. Now, you see, I thought that was a trick question. What's your name, by the way? Raymond. Raymond? Well, thank you very much for answering that. Have a badge, Raymond. Um, but I thought someone maybe would say democracy, but Democritus had nothing to do with that. But his big idea was that everything we see around us, all the stuff, all the matter, it was, it's made from atoms tiny, invisible things that you just can't divide any further. Um, and we still hold with that idea today, 2,400 years on, he lived around 400 BC, that everything's made of atoms. And every recipe needs ingredients, and the right recipe for an apple pie is the atoms that make it up, was what Carl Sagan was saying. And I'm probably, I'll take this one question, I'll probably do more at the end, but what are you going to say? Can't atoms be divided into subatomic particles? Oh, and there's always one, isn't there? And so we're going to come to that later on. So have a, have a badge to be quiet for the time being. <laughs> Sorry there. Okay, and so the question is, then just how small are those atoms? So, I thought I'd put this quote up just to show you how absolutely referring to the book this talk's going to be. And I need a volunteer from the audience. <laughs> and just for this one, I think I'd better take someone I know, because this is quite a sharp knife. And if some damage gets done, I think if we pick Isaac on the end here, and if he cuts his two fingers off, then maybe his parents won't sue me. So that's what I'm hoping. So I have one of the apple pies down here, and be very careful with this knife. And what I'd like, what I'd like, this is Isaac, by the way, and I'd like you to cut this apple pie into half, very carefully. Okay. And now we're going to take one of those halves away and we're going to cut it into half again. And so half of a half makes, shout it out, a quarter. So that's done twice. And let's keep that one, that looks better. So cut that into half again. Third cut now. Okay, so a half of a quarter, that's kind of an eighth. So keep going, cut it in half again. This is the fourth cut. <laughs> so that's the sixteenth. See if you can cut the next one into half. <laughs> so one thirty-two, one thirty-second, and now let's try again. Sixty-four. Yay! Very impressive. And again. <laughs> We're beginning to struggle now, but that was impressively done. 
So once more. <laughs> and I think that's probably enough. And so I'm going to take that back off you. And a round of applause. <laughs> and the thing is, that knife, you see, even though it's my finest Japanese steel, that knife could never cut all the way down to the size of an atom. But here in Oxford, there's another book, the, and there's the whole His Dark Materials series from Philip Pullman, and the second book is The Subtle Knife, and that knife could cut down to the atomic level. And I worked it out yesterday that if we kept halving that apple pie, it would take, I think, 35 cuts till we were down to the size of an individual atom. So that's how, how small they are. Um, now, when we talk about atoms today, we think there are 92 different types. So absolutely everything you see around us is made of 92 types, and we call those the 92 different elements. And the smallest is something called hydrogen, and then helium, and then lithium, beryllium, boron. And then element number six is carbon. And Oh, which is an artificial atom, presumably, then. I didn't even know that. The largest natural atom is uranium, which is number 92. But anyway, we have carbon, and that's kind of familiar. There's also tungsten and radon and boson and... And there are lots and lots of different, <laughs> different elements. And erbium and yttrium and prysodynium and things like that are less familiar to us. But, and, and it is kind of cool, but anyway, carbon is more familiar to us, and this is what carbon atoms actually look like. And I think that's amazing that we can see all the way down to the atom atomic level now, and these black dots are the, are the carbon atoms there. And carbon's a really special element, and there's a whole branch of chemistry called organic chemistry built around carbon because it makes very complicated structures. So it's kind of the stuff of life. And there's lots of carbon atoms in that apple pie because it's organic. And I thought, at school, maybe you guys still use pencils. And this black line that you write with in the middle of a pencil, we call it a lead. But in fact, it's pure carbon. And in fact, it's the same type of carbon as we have arranged over here with each atom having six other carbon atoms arranged around it. Um, and, I'm, and so, in each of you, there are actually about 800 pencils worth of carbon. So that's an amazing thing that we have, we have that much in all of us. And my question is where were all those carbon atoms actually made? And we're going to do this in the talk, so if there are questions, we'll do, them, we'll do them at the end of the talk. And the answer is, and, and so some of you might think they've been around forever, or some might think they were made in the Big Bang, where the universe started, but the answer is that those carbon atoms are made in the heart of stars, like all elements, because you could say stars are sort of the atom factories 
of the universe. And this is something that Johnny McIntosh, because he's quite into his science, he knows. So this is a little bit of the first book. All his life, Johnny had loved the stars. On some nights, when he lay gazing up at them, it almost felt as if they were calling out to him, whispering his name across the vastness of space. He knew loads of their names and could easily, easily point to Shedir, Procyon or Betelgeuse or any of the constellations they helped make up. In their case, Cassiopeia, Canis Minor and Orion. He knew how stars evolved and how they sometimes died. One of the things he loved was that he, like everyone, was made of star stuff. The only place in the universe where heavy atoms could be made was at the centre of a star. And only when that star died, sometimes exploding, going supernova, could those atoms travel across space. Five billion years ago, some of that star stuff came together and formed the Earth. Five billion years later, it had come together to form Johnny. And for as long as he could remember, Johnny knew he wanted to go to return to the stars from where he came. So if you just remember one thing from this talk that you take away, I'd like it to be that all of us, everything that binds you together, the atoms that made all of us, were, they were created in the heart of stars. So you are all made of star stuff. And I'm going to try and explain as simply as I can how that is. Because nowadays, as we heard, we've tweaked Democritus's definition of an atom and we say that you can divide it into smaller things which might be cheating perhaps but we've built these big machines and we call them atom smashers and perhaps the most famous of those is this one here which is the large which is the large hadron collider um, as it says at the bottom so that was a bit of a giveaway and you can see just how large it is because down here we have a little man and so that's kind of the scale of it and this tunnel is 27 kilometers long can i recommend you if anyone works there and hates that man when he's standing there fire the atoms the <laughs> <laughs> you could recommend that but that would be quite nasty that's really <laughs> so that's the large hadron collider and that's an atom smasher and you may have heard lots of different things about it because it's quite famous. And one thing is that it's recreating the conditions quite soon after the Big Bang. And maybe you've even heard it's looking for something that people call the God particle, which is properly known as the Higgs boson. I'm sure you knew that. Now, some people have said that the Large Hadron Collider here is going to bring about the end of the world. And so if you're worried about that, then this is a URL that you can go to, which, if you come read it, it's HTTP has the Large Hadron Collider destroyed the world yet dot com. So a couple of days ago, I took a screenshot of what happened when you went to that website, and there <laughs> it is. So at the moment, we seem to be safe. And we've all heard quite a lot of things about the Large Hadron Collider, but one thing you probably haven't heard is that it's actually a time machine. Because I don't think scientists are very good at promoting and publicising time travel. But if any of you have been to one of my talks before, you'll know that the secret to time travel is to go as absolutely fast as you can. 
And that doesn't just get you where you're going more quickly, it also takes you more quickly into the future. Um, but the problem is, the universe has a maximum speed limit, and that speed limit is... The speed of light that the Large Hadron Collider only goes at 99.99999% And so that's pretty good. So the, sp the speed of light is the universal speed limit, um, and that is really, really fast. It's 300 million... Um, meters per second. So 40 years ago, we sent a Apollo astronauts to the moon, which is 240,000 miles away, and it took them three days to get there. But if we shone a beam of light at the moon, it would take 1.3 seconds. Um, so that's the difference in speed. And so, as we heard, the particles in the Large Hadron Collider, they're in fact going at 99.9999 991% of the speed of light. And that's really, really fast. And what that means is that time slows for those particles by a factor of about 7,500. And so those particles whizzing round are aging 1 um, times more slowly than the same type of particle that's standing still. But that's a really hard thing to understand or appreciate. So I thought Let's scale it up, and let's imagine I've built a rocket on South Park, and it can travel as fast as those particles in the Large Hadron Collider. And let's imagine now we all went down to South Park, we got in that rocket, and we blasted off. And we went on a three-day journey, like the Apollo astronauts, how long it took them to go to the moon. So we get to the moon really, really, really quickly, and we could go to all the planets in the solar system, and we could get out, we could go to about five times the orbit of Pluto, and then come round and get back. And we'd arrive three days later for us, back here in Oxford. Uh, but it wouldn't be Friday when we got out of our rocket. It would actually be, um, it would actually be autumn. But it wouldn't be autumn... 2010, it would be autumn in the year 2071, which is an amazing, amazing thing that by going that quickly, you've travelled in, into the future. Um, and so there's a catch to doing that. Well, first of all, I'll tell you how we know that in case you don't believe me. And we've tested that over and over again in the laboratory. And we've known that for 105 years uh, since some science guy wrote another science paper which is called On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies. And that guy was called Albert Einstein. And that's what we now know as special relativity. And it tells us... The faster we travel, the faster, further into the future we go. But the universe, as well as having a speed limit, it also has one-way streets. And so we can go into the future, but we don't know, and we, we think maybe you can't, and we certainly don't know how you can ever get back. And that's where what I said at the big beginning comes in, because in this first book, for instance, Johnny and Clara, they travel all through, backwards and forwards in time. Uh, and in fact, so I've invented some science of time travel to make that possible in the book. So we have Bolaban's laws of temporal mechanics, of which the first is up there, said by a character called Alf. 
temporal, displaced temporal energy will always tend towards the equilibrium, and there are other laws. And this second book was originally going to be called Johnny Macintosh and the Fountain of Time, um, to do with a big body of liquid particles of time, but then we, we went for Starblaze instead. So not all the science in Johnny Macintosh is, is true science, but maybe... Maybe it will happen. But anyway, back to Einstein and special relativity. That contains probably the most famous equation in all of science. So can anyone guess what that might be? H equals mc squared, but may I make a point? <laughs> <laughs> if we did go back and if we were capable of going at light speed, then since that would mean that since we're made of m, then if we were going at c, then wouldn't that mean that we became h? So, so I would say the, the equation is E equals mc squared, um, where E stands for energy. But you have a point that if, if you travelled at the speed of light, because we have mass, then we would become infinitely heavy and disappear into black holes. But we'll come to all of that later on. <laughs> and, but anyway, the most famous equation is E equals mc squared. And so I've mocked up Einstein's blackboard so you can see his thought processes as he tried to work that out. And C here actually stands for the speed of light, and C squared means C times C. So I said the speed of light is really, really, really fast, so C squared C times itself is massive. So even if this M, which is the amount of stuff around us, is very little, we still get an awful lot of energy out from converting matter in, into energy. And this is the equation behind something called nuclear fusion, which is combining small elements into big elements. And that's something that only really normally happens in the heart of stars except it also happens about eight miles down the road at a place called Cullum, where we've built something called the Joint European Taurus, which is trying to harness the power of the stars and turn it into an endless, clean supply of energy, which will help us combat climate change and, and things like that. And that project now has, has moved down to, to France for, for the next generation. But anyway, it might be amazing that there are only 92 different things, 92 different elements. But as we heard before, that's actually a bit complicated. And when you look inside an atom, we've discovered something different. And all those 92 elements are made up of just three little things combined in different ways. And surprisingly, most of an atom is actually empty space. Um, and then right at the centre, there's a nucleus. Um, and that nucleus is made of um, particles called protons with a positive electric charge, and then particles the same size with no electric charge called neutrons, and then a kind of insubstantial cloud of negatively charged electrons around it. And what's brilliant about this is that it's really, really, really simple. And so hydrogen just has one proton, helium two, and then carbon that we saw has six, gold 79, and going up. So I thought maybe I could have two volunteers 
to do some some nuclear fusion for me. <laughs> and I feel let's have oh you two have spoken enough, so let's have girl and boy. Okay, and I want us to take one of these black things from out of here, so help yourself to one of these. And we're gonna say this is one proton, this is um, and that's also one hydrogen nucleus, because that's all there is at the heart of a hydrogen atom. And now I want you to take one of these, and we're going to say this is a neutron, and we're going to try and stick them together. And because this still only has one proton at its heart, it's still hydrogen, but this is now heavy hydrogen, or deuterium. But now... We're going to take another proton. Ooh, could have gone horribly wrong. And we're going to try and join that together. And now, at the heart of this nucleus, we've got two protons, so we've got helium. And helium really likes to have two neutrons beside it. So if you take another white ball, then that, what we've done here is the process of nuclear fusion and combining two hydrogen nuclei into one of helium. And the thing is, these four together, they weigh a little less than if you had four on your own separately. And that difference in how much they weigh is what's converted into energy. And it's converted into energy in the form of a tiny piece, a little particle of light. And so that's the process that's going in on in stars all the time. That's happening in our sun. And that's why stars shine. And that's why the whole universe is, is alive with light. So thank you very much, my nuclear physicists. Do take a badge. And to make heavier elements, you just go up and up the chain and add more and more of those together. But the thing is, ultimately, these particles, they're the fuel of the stars in the sky, and every star will, in the end, run out of fuel. And when that happens, because the stars, they're fighting a constant battle against the force of gravity, when they've got no burning of fuel to hold them up, they're going to lose that fight and they're all going to collapse. So who discovered gravity? Einstein. It wasn't Einstein, though our best theory of, Einstein, of gravity comes from Einstein, the general theory of relativity, but it was. Was it Isaac Newton? It was Isaac Newton, and it happened when an apple fell on his head when he was out in the garden in Grantham. And his brilliant insight was that the same force that made that apple land on his head was what was holding the moon in orbit around the Earth and all the other planets around the sun. And he worked out that every single piece of matter in the whole universe was attracting everything else. So you here, you're all attracting everybody else. But because the more matter you have in one place, so the Earth has a lot more matter than we do. We're all attracted straight down to the, to the centre of the, of the Earth. Um, 
And so when stars run out of fuel, when they're burning fuel using the equations of fusion, they create an outward pressure. And when they stop, when they run out of fuel, that pressure's gone. And so every star in the sky is going to collapse. And it's going to happen to our sun, but it's not going to happen probably for another five billion years. But when it happens, the sun will shrink down to what we call to uh, at, at the moment the sun is a million times bigger than the earth um, and so it's absolutely huge so that's why the force of gravity from the sun is so big but when the sun's run out of fuel it's going to shrink down to the size of the earth to become a white dwarf but before that happens when it's trying to burn its helium and make higher higher elements it will actually bloat and for a time it will get bigger and it will swell and it will swallow up the planet Mercury and it will swallow up the planet Venus and it will even swallow up the planet Earth and it will become a red giant star and it will be 200 times as bright and then its outer skin, its shell, is going to be shed out into the solar system and that's when it collapses down and when we look into the night sky we see these things called planetary nebula like the ring nebula here. And this is the star stuff that atoms given out as that shell's given out, uh, as it blows off the, the, the star. And in the middle is the, is the white dwarf at the end. So that's one way that stars die. But there are actually three ways that stars die. And I call this star stuff and supergiants. And there are supergiant stars in the Johnny Macintosh books. And so one of them in Johnny Macintosh Starblaze is called Onitak. And so from all around, Saul's voice explained, Onitak is a binary system that from Earth appears as the leftmost star of Orion's belt. And so when we say binary, that means there are two stars together orbiting each other. And the ones here, one's 20 times bigger than the sun and the other's 14 times bigger than the sun. Now, I have a favourite film, and there's a great line in it, which is, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And the film is Blade Runner, if, if anybody didn't know. Um, and stars take that to the extreme. So the stars in Onitak, they're burning 100,000 times brighter than the sun. So the sun's lived for 5 billion years, it's going to live for 5 billion more, whereas Onitak is six million years old and it's already beginning to die. It's already burned all the hydrogen at its centre. And because these stars are so huge, when they die, something very spectacular happens because um, they have so much energy. Uh, what we scientists say, energy is always conserved. And they ha when they're out here, they have what's called gravitational potential energy. And then when they shrink very quickly, because the collapse of a star happens over just a few seconds when it goes, then all that energy has got to go somewhere. And it goes into a massive, massive, massive explosion, which is called a supernova. Or, if you read this, that the other inhabitants of the galaxy call a star blaze. Um, and when that happens, just that one star, 
will outshine everything else in the entire rest of the galaxy. We think there are 200 billion stars in the galaxy, but that explosion will be brighter than all of them. And so it happened in 1054, so 12 years before the Battle of Hastings, um, the reports from all over the world about what the Chinese called their guest star, which you could see in the daytime sky for two weeks and then in the night sky for two years. And this is what it looks like now. That's the Crab Nebula, and that's the remnant of a supernova explosion again with all the atoms that will make other planets and people up being spread out. But at the centre of the remnants of a supernova explosion, you don't get a white dwarf like our sun, you get something else because gravity squeezes it much more tightly. So even the atoms are destroyed and the protons and the electrons are merged together just to form neutrons. So at the heart of that, we get something called a neutron star and it's so densely packed together that if you took, say, a teaspoon of that material, it would weigh a billion tons. So that's a million, million bags of sugar just, just on one teaspoon. Um, and so here, so that's another way um, that stars can, can die. And, and when they do, neutron stars, they spin very quickly and they give out bursts of radio waves. So every time they spin round, um, we get a pulse of radio waves coming towards us. And when we, these were first discovered... In the 1960s, they were labelled LGM. Now, does anyone know what LGM might have stood for, a label from astronomers? And it was Little Green Men, full marks, because these were regular radio signals from space, which is what Johnny McIntosh is looking for at the start of this book kind of alien communications and they were discovered in Cambridge and the team that found them couldn't be sure for a while that they weren't alien signals but then they realised that it was this phenomenon that had been predicted. Um, so now I'm going to show you this plaque. Now this plaque is about 10 billion miles away from the Earth because it's on the side of a spaceship and it's on the side of a space probe launched in 1972 called Pioneer 10. And you can see down at the bottom here, that's the sun and the planets, the third planet Earth, where the probe was launched from and where it's gone. And over here, these are the people who launched the probe and there's a big version of the probe behind them so you can see how big they are compared to it. But over here on the left, we have a map and this, the, the lines, the, the, line, the little lines going across here are the frequency of different pulsars so that if an alien ever finds this spaceship, they know where it's launched from and they can find their way back to Earth. Now, some people might think that's a really bad idea. If you've seen films like Independence Day or something like that, where the aliens come and do all sorts of nasty things... But in fact, the cat's already out the bag. Because um, every time you listen to the radio or every time you watch TV, 
that signal's not just been broadcast to you, that's been broadcast out into space. And the first radio transmission was, I think, in 1906. So there's a shell 104 light years across that's left the Earth of the messages we've been sending out with very little quality control. And so if aliens have radio telescopes within that radius and they're pointing them towards the Earth, then they'll already know that we're here. Um, so one more supergiant in the book is a star called Eta Carinae. And I was just going to read a little bit about that in Johnny Macintosh Starblaze. Their target was clear, a giant sun surrounded by two vast, near-circular lobes of luminous gas, one on either side. Over the last few months, Johnny had seen many stars on his travels, but this one was special. It was huge, by far the biggest of them all. The blue giant looked a hundred times larger than the sun. Its edges blurred by great plumes of glowing gas breaking away from the surface that swirled with great currents of light and dark in constant turmoil. In the foreground, in the glare of this monster, space teemed with countless ships. He could not have imagined that so many spacecraft could be in the one place, black ships set against the blackness of space. So this is a Hubble photograph of the the star that's about as big as any star can theoretically possibly get, Eta Carinae, but even a Hubble photograph can't picture the same ships that, that Johnny's seen. But maybe they're there. But what happens with this star, because it's so absolutely enormous, when it explodes, it will become a supernova. And <coughs> the reason I've picked this out is that ever since the telescope was invented, we've not seen any supernovae in our galaxy. We see them in other galaxies, but we haven't seen them in our own. Um, and that's a little odd, because we'd hope to see them about every 50 to 100 years, but the last one was in 1604. And this star is perhaps our best candidate for the next supernova in our galaxy. And when it collapses, it's not even going to stop at the neutron star stage. It's going to keep going because there's so much matter there. And as it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, the gravitational field it exerts gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can tell what I'm going to say. And eventually, that gravitational field gets so strong that not even light traveling at 300 million meters a second can escape from it. And so this it's going to become a black hole. And that's what a black hole means when light can't, can't get out of it. Um, and so what does that mean? How dense does that have to be? It's like taking all the stuff in the whole Earth and shrinking it down to something that has a radius of only a centimetre. So that's how dense it is, all the sun down to about three kilometres. And at the centre of our galaxy, there's a very, very, very big black hole called Sagittarius A star. And that's mentioned quite a lot in the, in the Johnny Macintosh books. Um, and black holes are time machines as well. I wouldn't recommend this, but another way of getting into the future is to pass through a very, very strong gravitational field. So if you almost fell into a black hole, but not quite, 
then actually there's no telling when you'd come out, but it would be probably a long way into the far future. Um, so I'm probably going to wrap up now and then do read from the books, but I've said we come from stars um, and from the matter that's flung out of stars when they collapse, but it's not just a one-off occurrence that supernovae and the stars affect our lives. We think the solar system itself was only formed because of a shockwave from a nearby supernova. And then evolution over the whole course of life on Earth is sometimes driven by mutations in our DNA. And when a star like this explodes, it sends out very high-energy particles. We call them called cosmic rays. And just occasionally, those particles, they'll strike the Earth. And even more occasionally, they'll maybe pass through a creature on the Earth and they'll cause a change in that creature's DNA. So supernova have even affected evolution here, here on Earth. And so you, all of you, you get your DNA from your mom and your dad, but you're also kind of children, children of the stars. And so I'm just going to finish by reading some stuff from the new book, Johnny Macintosh Starblaze, which talks about some of the ideas that I've spoken about here. And there wasn't one passage that I thought really showed it, so I'm just going to skip through a little bit um, of, the, of the first chapter of this book. Now, I've written this book so you can read it without having read the first book, Spirit of London, but of course it'd be much more fun if you, if you read them in order, but I'll leave that to you. But anyway, chapter one, Supernova. It was the autumn half-term holidays. Johnny McIntosh sat in his chair, gazing out of the window for any sign of his friend, who was, by now, several hours late. He glanced at the device on his wrist, checking the time. If he didn't leave soon, he might miss the meeting at Hallader House, the children's home where he lived. His headmistress had demanded it. The school was becoming increasingly tired of his unexplained absences. Still no sign, the voice came from Clara, who had just entered the room behind him. She walked over and stood beside Johnny's chair. Unmistakably, they were brother and sister, with their matching white blonde hair and pale skin. Golden chains hung around each of their necks, supporting ornate lockets inlaid with crystals. Their clothes nearly matched too. Both wore white tops over their jeans, but while Johnny's was emblazoned with five gold stars in the shape of a wonky W, Cloris had seven lilac stars in the form of the constellation the plough. Johnny shook his head grimly, rose from the chair, stepped over a grey and white, sleeping grey and white old English sheepdog, and walked across to the window. The scene outside had remained nearly the same for the last five hours. That didn't make it any less extraordinary, but Johnny McIntosh was hardly an ordinary boy. In fact, you could say he was as unordinary as it was possible to get. Through his dark green eyes, speckled with silver flecks, he was staring 
at the huge planet Saturn, which completely dominated the view. The majestic rings cast a shadow over the gas giant's globe, obscuring many of the storms that raged in its upper atmosphere. For Johnny was not standing in any room on Earth. He was on the bridge of his very own spaceship, the Spirit of London. The ship had been given him six months before by no less a person than His Majesty Bram Kari, Emperor of the Galaxy, and from the outside was a carbon copy of his favourite building, the London Gherkin. There, said Clara, pointing to a tiny white dot that if it hadn't winked into existence a moment before, might have been just another star. So what they're doing is they're meeting another ship, and that's not another star, that's another spaceship called Shebora, and it's who they've been waiting for, but it's not at the proper rendezvous point. So moving down the page, something's gone wrong, said Johnny, biting his lips as he worried about exactly what. Sol was displaying the other spaceship on the view screen. Normally dazzling white, parts of Shebora's hull, hull looked blackened and bruised. As the minutes passed and they drew closer, more of the damage became visible, the huge rips in the ship's sides ever more apparent. She didn't look spaceworthy. And so they catch up with this other spaceship and they meet its captain, Captain Valdor, and he's telling Johnny what's happened. Truly, I have never seen such horror, replied the captain. Whole planets burned, billions of lives with them. The fourth fleet destroyed in a star blaze, brighter than a galaxy. They exploded a sun in the Ptolemon system. A supernova, asked Johnny. Who could even do that? The Andromedan, said Valdor. It was Nymac. As he said the name, he spat thick brown blood out onto the deck. It was a name that Johnny had heard before. There was a war going on, a war between galaxies. The Andromedans were invading the Milky Way, and with their evil general Nymac, they seemed to be winning. And so a little further down the page, Johnny wonders, who was to say where Nymac's trail of dis destruction would lead now? Ptolemon was a triple star system known on Earth as Alpha Centauri. Only four light years away, it was the closest collection of nearby stars. Earth's sun could easily be next. What the captain had called Starblaze had to be what astronomers knew as a supernova. Johnny was fairly sure that the sun was too small to become one. But the same should have been true of the stars of Alpha Centauri. What Nymek had done defied the laws of physics, but there was no time to investigate. Johnny still had his stupid meeting to attend due to start in Hallada House in only 20 minutes. And so Johnny and Bentley, the old English sheepdog, They've taken a shuttlecraft, which is in the shape of a, of a black taxi, and they've taken it back to Earth to get, get there for the meeting, and they've just arrived in low Earth orbit. When he looked back, all he could see was the blackness of space and the beauty of the non-twinkling stars, including Cassiopeia, the big W. Johnny couldn't help but stare at his favourite constellation, the one that matched the pattern of freckles on the inside of his left forearm. After a few seconds, he turned to face forward and saw with horror that he was not alone. Only a few hundred metres below, 
was the International Space Station. Johnny thought, shields on, and hoped for all the world that he hadn't been spotted. Around him, the sides of the taxi disappeared, followed by Johnny and Bentley themselves, until they were invisible mines floating alone in the cosmos. 340 kilometers above Earth, they passed the space station windows so close that they could see the astronauts inside. Johnny would have loved to stay longer, but he had to press on for the meeting. Far below, the outline of the west of Africa was clearly visible. He took the Jubilee down into the thin layer of atmosphere that protected Earth. If NIMAC could turn the sun into a supernova, all this would be boiled away into space. One day, when Earth's local star swelled to become a red giant, it would happen anyway. But astronomers weren't expecting that to be for another five billion years, roughly speaking. Johnny was determined to do everything in his power to ensure they were right. And then the very last piece. Do lots of you have Nintendo DSs? I'd have thought a fair few of you handheld games console for some of the adults who don't know what I'm talking about. And Johnny has one of those as well, and he's connected it wirelessly to his main computer, which is an intelligent quantum computer uh, called Kovac, and he's asked Kovac to create a simulation of what would happen if the sun were to become a supernova and send it to his, his handheld. He switched the device on, and soon the blank screen came alive with the simulation he'd asked the quantum computer to prepare. A bloated star was in its death throes, having finally run out of usable fuel to keep shining. The next moment, it was collapsing under its own weight as the force of gravity took hold. The commentary told Johnny he was watching Earth's own sun, somehow altered, all the remaining matter of the star, its spent fuel was being crushed ever more tightly together, the temperature rising higher and higher, the very atoms were being squeezed and something had to give. The screen on the console flared brilliant white as the handheld depicted one of the biggest explosions the Milky Way would see. The galaxy might contain hundreds of billions of stars, but in this moment, their combined light would be outshone by this one cataclysmic event. Kovac said that a man called Chandrasekhar had shown a star needed to be much bigger than the sun to become a supernova. But it was clear to Johnny that, Nym that Nymak had somehow found a way round, round that. The simulation showed a vast fireball spreading out into the solar system, obliterating everything and anything it encountered. It would take just over an hour before Earth was vaporized. He fast-forwarded to a point when North and South America were facing the sun and felt the full force of the impact. It took only a couple of seconds before the molten red glow spread from there around the globe and Earth itself began to disintegrate. Even though it was only a simulation, it was terrible to watch. Whatever the cost, NIMAC had to be stopped. Okay. And so, you guys have been a lovely, lovely audience and thank